Well, good evening, everybody. It's nice to see uh, a large audience. I'm Stuart Corbridge. I'm one of the pro-directors here at LSE, and it's, uh, it's a great pleasure to have all of you with us at the school this evening for the lecture by Professor Henry Overman on the topic, The Economic Future of British Cities, What Should Urban Policy Do? You would now just please turn off your mobile phones or anything that's likely to be irritating. That would be very helpful. Let me give a little bit of background um, on the, the lecture series itself. Um, LSE, we think, has actually the best public event series anywhere in the world. I'm happy to be challenged on that, but I believe that that is true. We have a fantastic array of speakers speaking every night. But one of the things that we've been conscious of is that sometimes we don't advertise our own talent as much as we might do. And we have, at the school, 22 academic departments and soon 19 research centres. So the title of the lecture series that Henry's going to kick off tonight is rather punningly entitled LSE Works, and we're trying to establish some of the things that we do here, we think, quite effectively at LSE. And the way that this series has been organised is that we will ask one of our leading researchers at the school, tonight obviously Henry, to say something about the research that he and his centre are doing, and then we'll have two respondents who we hope will be engaging with some of the research that's coming out of, uh, of one of LSE's research centres. So as I say, I'm delighted that Henry Overman, who's a friend sitting to my right here, is leading off the series tonight. It's a great pleasure to introduce him. Uh, Henry is a professor of economic geography here at LSE, and for some years he's been running our highly successful uh, spatial economics research centre. One of the things I think that's very notable about Henry is that he really gets it around the agenda of knowledge exchange, public engagement, and impact. And the government sometimes thinks that academics don't get this agenda. I think many more academics do than the government gives us credit for. Uh, but Henry is certainly one of the economists at the school who's been very concerned to make sure that the research that's coming out of LSE is connecting outside of the academy. He certainly doesn't shy away from it. He's also a sterling member of LSE's research committee. Uh, Henry's two respondents tonight are sitting down at the front, as shall I, so that we can see the presentation. Uh, Alexandra Jones and Adam Marshall, and we're, we're delighted that you're with us tonight. Thank you very much for taking the time. Uh, Alexandra Jones has been the chief executive of the Centre for Cities since 2010. And before that, Alexandra led Ideolopolis, um, the city's team at the Work Foundation, and worked for the former Department for Education and Employment. I hope I've got that right. Um, we're also joined by Adam Marshall. I don't know which order the two of you are going to go into. I think it's a bit of a toss-up. Who, since 2009, has been Director of Policy and External Affairs at the British Chambers of Commerce, which is, of course, a huge network which effectively brings together more than 100,000 firms and speaks for, in a sense, up to five, five million employees. So thank you very much for coming. Uh, the idea is that Henry will speak first, obviously, for about 35 or 40 minutes, uh, and then we'll turn to our respondents. So, Henry, thanks very much for being with us tonight. Uh, thank you, Stuart, for that uh, introduction. Um, I'll get right to it. I should say that uh, this is a, a new adventure for me. Uh, as I tried to explain to my administrator, uh, I've tried to go for slides with hardly any words on and actually remember what I'm going to say. 
Uh, he, he, when I said, uh, I'm going for slides with hardly any words on, uh, said, oh my God, is it all equations? Uh, you'll be relieved to know that uh, there's not a single equation in sight as we go through. So the economic future of British cities, what should urban policy do? Let me just give you a, an outline. What I'm going to do for you is first talk a little bit about the recent performance of British cities and uh, try to convince you of the fact that Really, it's quite remarkable, uh, a t quite remarkable turnaround relative to where we were uh, even uh, 10, 15 years ago. I'm then going to talk a little bit about how we understand that, how we understand urban economic performance, what makes places successful uh, versus what makes places unsuccessful. Once we've gone through that understanding, I'll talk a little bit about the future where I'll make some uh, predictions about what I think is going to happen in terms of the economic future, and then I'll turn to, to the issue of policy. So that gives you a little bit of an idea of uh, what we're going to do, so let me get straight into it. So the thing I want to convince you first is the fact that um, the sort of recent downturn notwithstanding, the economic performance of British cities in the last 15, 20 years has really seen a remarkable turnaround uh, from previous performance, uh, at least for some of our urban cities. So here, uh, to give you the feeling for this, are the figures for annual growth, and I've deliberately taken something here that stops pre-recession. Uh, and you can see here that I've put the annual growth rate from uh, 1991 to 1997 uh, and the annual growth rate from 2001 uh, to 2005. Sorry, I'm just going to move this. Bit better. Um, I mean, the first thing to note is that London, remember, lost 2 million people uh, following the war, uh, but by 1991 to 1997, 2001, 2005, we've seen its population start to go, grow again, and we're now at a point where... Um, in fact, London's basically back to the same sort of size as it was. And that's a remarkable turnaround. Uh, and that turnaround has come later uh, for some of our uh, provincial cities. So, for example, you know, Birmingham uh, was losing population still up until about 1997. And then from 2000 onwards, turned itself around. Uh, Manchester, likewise, losing population uh, up until 1997 and then turned itself around. Um, and Newcastle, likewise, losing population in uh, 1997 and then turned itself around. The other thing that I want you to get from this, as well as the fact that some of our cities have managed to turn themselves around, is that some of our cities haven't managed to do that. Uh, you see that you know, Liverpool has carried on losing population. Sunderland has carried on losing population. So uh, this uh, story about places turning around is going to be an important part of the story as I go forward. But so too is the fact that you know, this ha performance hasn't been uniform across places. Okay? There are some places that you know, seem to be doing okay, and there are some places, well, which I'm afraid really aren't doing so okay. And even during the boom period, uh, they didn't manage to get themselves sorted out. Now, um, let me just tell you sort of the story about uh, why I think this turnaround happened, and then I'll go and do it a little bit more rigorously. Okay? So uh, the first um, part of the story is to think about cities as places of production. And here, uh, the crucial thing really is uh, to do with structural changes that have occurred in the British economy. What I've done here is rank a whole bunch of different activities by how much they benefit uh, from being in urban environments. 
Okay, so this is a sort of measure of uh, how productive these different types of activities are or how much more productive they are when they occur in sort of bigger urban places rather than smaller urban places. Uh, and what you see here is that, you know, if you take manufacturing, manufacturing uh, benefits a little bit from being uh, in urban places, in bigger places, um, but services benefit more. So you come down this thing. And the sort of higher tech services... Uh, benefit a hell of a lot more from being in large places. So, for example, you see you know, finance and insurance uh, is much more productive when it's in a large place uh, than when it's in a smaller place. Uh, actually, you know, manufacturing can, you know, higher tech manufacturing can also benefit a lot from being in sort of large urban environments. Now, you know, how does this help us understand the turnaround that we've seen in terms of the fortune of British cities? Well, part of the story here, of course, is that the structural shifts that we've seen in the UK economy, in the UK economy have seen us moving away from manufacturing towards these things that benefit a lot from being in cities. So part of the story uh, is a move towards industries and activities that benefit a lot from being in urban places. Now, along with this... Um, we've seen an increased importance of skills for driving uh, how well you do in the economy. Okay? Uh, and, of course, these two factors are very well connected. But from the point of view of cities, what's remarkable is the fact that you know, this has been a period where we've really seen a concentration of higher-skilled workers in particular urban places doing those particular industries that benefit a lot from being in urban places. So here, uh, stolen from Centre for Cities, uh, very helpful cities outlook, uh, are the proportion of working age population. These are the top ten cities in the UK in terms of the share of working age population with our highest qualifications. And you see, not unsurprisingly, Oxford, Cambridge, uh, up the top here with 50%, uh, Edinburgh, Brighton, Aberdeen, London. To give you some idea, the UK average is about 30% in terms of the share of these guys with the highest population. And the worst uh, performing cities in uh, the city's outlook uh, are Hull with about 20% and Wakefield with 18%. So um, two things sort of have driven this resurgence, this structural shift and the fact that um, people with higher skills have, have tended to move back into cities uh, as we shifted uh, in terms of our, our economic performance. Now, that's uh, cities as places of production. There's a second factor at play here, which is that as sort of high-skilled people have come back into the cities and concentrated in the cities, we've seen cities emerge as places of consumption uh, in a way that uh, perhaps they weren't uh, in the mid-'90s. So, you know, Here's some pretty pictures. You know, there's something up there that you can see from a particular northern city. Here are the Albert Docks. Uh, this is uh, Urbis, uh, now the National Museum of Football in Manchester. And here are the concentration of, of uh, theatres that you see in the West End. Okay? So we've seen this uh, tendency for urban amenities uh, to sort of become better over this period uh, and for cities to become more attractive as sort of urban playgrounds. And it's the... the concentration of skilled workers in these places have somehow uh, reinforced uh, the role of these urban amenities because uh, obviously you know, we bring income with us as highly skilled people and that then gets turned into the pro 
provision of services that we all value. Uh, I was looking for a picture to capture this. I, I wanted, as a joke, a picture of posh eating, uh, and then I couldn't find a picture of posh eating, so I had to go for a posh person eating. Uh, so, you know, this is the idea that, you know, a lot of these cities have become uh, places where sort of wealthy people can get the amenities that they want, and that's become increasingly important uh, over this time period. And actually, later on, I will show you a picture that uh, hopefully will convince you just quite how important uh, that uh, cities as consumption uh, places has become. That's a sort of, you know, settling us in gently. Now let me try and be a bit more rigorous about this, because of course the point of these lectures is that we're supposed to be, you know, drawing on CERC research to try and you know, help you understand these phenomena, and I think probably anyone could have given you the sort of spiel I've just given you. So let me do something that's a little bit more uh, in-depth, that tries to understand, you know, what drives urban economic performance in the UK. So here, the way that uh, we tend to think about this in CERT is that we uh, try to split urban economic performance down into two components. We try to split it into the component that comes from people, okay, from having high-skilled people in a place versus low-skilled people in a place. Uh, so that's one dimension of it. And the other dimension that we try to split it into is to do with the place itself. So how productive anyone would be if they were located in the place. Okay? So the advantages that some places deliver over others. And the way that we try to break this down is by having a very, very rich data set on individuals and following them over time. And as we follow them over time, we can see what wages they earn and we can see how those wages change when they move between places. And that allows us to unpack the sort of history of uh, their, the, their sort of income into uh, that that's you know, related to who they are and what's related to where they are. And then this thing here, this picture here, looks at uh, who you are on this axis here. Okay. Uh, and if you're up this end, you're a place which on average has people who would earn high salaries wherever they were based. And if you're down this end, I'm afraid, you have people who would earn low salaries wherever uh, they were based. And then on this axis over here, we plot the, we plot, uh, the area effect. Okay? And that area effect is um, the bonus that any person gets from living in a particular place. So if you are high up on that axis... Uh, then uh, the same person, you know, as they move to uh, move across places, would earn more uh, in in that city. And as you move uh, down, you, know, you would earn less living in that place, holding your skills constant. So, what do we see? We see actually things that, in a deep sense, we sort of understand. But this is unpacking it. Which is, you know, why does London do so well? London does very well because it is full of people who would earn high salaries wherever they lived. But on top of that, living in London pays them even more than if they lived somewhere else. Okay? And then as you come down here, I think uh, down here are some sort of northern uh, cities. I'll be gentle. Uh, it's happily obscured by uh, the way that I've done it. Uh, and those nor some of those northern cities 
I'm afraid, are full of people who wouldn't earn very much wherever they lived in the United Kingdom. And then on top of that, they earn even less than they would do uh, because they're living in that particular place. Okay? So, people versus place. And if you really want to understand what's going on in terms of the economic performance of UK cities, the real story is the fact that this thing slopes upwards. Right? So the best people are going to the places, uh, the best places. And I'm afraid the people who would have poor labour market outcomes, wherever they were based, are tending to end up in the places where they earn even less than they would do otherwise. Um, we can try and uh, think about this another way, uh, which is to think, you know, if you just went and looked at the average income, and you compared the worst place in Britain, the worst paying place in Britain, to the highest paying place in Britain, London pays a wage that is, has an average wage that is 67% higher than the uh, average wage in the poorest uh, place in Britain. But once you split that out in terms of those people versus place effects, that comparison doesn't seem anywhere near as stark. Because remember, London is chock full of people who uh, would uh, earn high wages anyhow. So if instead we look as someone uh, moves from the lowest paid place to the highest paid place in Britain, their wages only increase by about 16%. So uh, who you are is really, really important for determining uh, how you're going to do in the modern British economy. And part of the thing that explains places that are doing well is that they just are increasingly full of people who are going to do quite well wherever they live. Now, of course, that still leaves the fact that you know, London and other places do pay higher salaries. They deliver some kind of benefit to people from living there. Uh, and it's useful to think about why that happens. Here is you know, a picture that if you were... Coming to the LSE to study urban economics, uh, you would you know, get sick of seeing. This basically just looks at how, uh, as the size of a place increases, what tends to happen to wages. All right? And as the size of a place increases, wages tend to go up. Why? Well, economists think that this is because of things called agglomeration economies. We benefit from being near lots of other people either because we can exchange ideas with them or it's easy to buy and sell with them or we learn from them or any one of a number of mechanisms, right? So uh, one of the things that drives some places to be better than others is size. It's just pure brute size. And in fact, size is um, probably the most important factor after skills in understanding differences in wages across places in Britain. Okay. Now, this curve, I'm not going to say much about it uh, for the moment, but it will uh, become very important as we go through. Of course, big cities also come with, with big costs. All right? So just keep that in mind as we go through. But the you know, number one thing that we need to understand here is that if we want to understand those area effects, we want to understand why people earn more in some places than in others, size, is a, is a, size matters. Okay. What are the other things that matter? Well, if you can't be big, you know, if your place isn't big for some reason, it's really, really good to be near 
other areas that are successful. So this is just, uh, you know, a rail network. It's good to be near them, right? And that uh, either is because uh, your firms are able to interact with them or because brutally people are commuting from where you are to those places that are really productive, all right, as uh, happens throughout the southeast. So uh, another thing that drives these area effects is being near places that are successful. Uh, up here in the corner, we've got LSE graduates. It's not just that... Um, you know, skilled people earn more, but actually there's some, you know, there's evidence that concentrations of skilled people increase the returns to your individual skills. So uh, you want to be somewhere that's big, you want to be somewhere that's well-connected, you want to be somewhere that's actually full of other very smart people. And then finally you want some luck, which is that, you know, taking all of that into account, it's pretty good to be somewhere that happens to be producing an industry that, you know, is doing fairly well. So here's, you know, again, a repeat of those industries that you know, tend to benefit from being uh, uh, in, in, in big places. So people explain a lot of urban economic performance, concentrations of higher skilled people. And then we need to look to these things about size, about connectivity, about that reinforcement that you get from having lots of skilled people, about what kind of stuff your city just happens to be doing. And then there's some stuff we just don't understand, like some places are more entrepreneurial and some places are slightly more innovative. But those factors are really quite small relative to who you've got, how big you are, and then this is the third sort of category of things that matter. So if you want to understand recent urban economic performance in the UK, it's basically the place with lots of skilled workers that are larger, well-connected, uh, in the right kind of industries with lots of skilled workers, have tended to do really well. So that's the formal version uh, of the story I was just telling. And of course, the thing is that those factors tend to reinforce one another, right? Because if you're productive, because you're big, that tends to attract people there, which makes you bigger, which makes you more productive. It also, those factors tend to be the things that actually make you more resilient when you get hit by some massive global recession. Okay? Um, you know, what are the where are the places that have been okay? They're the places that have um, had lots of skilled workers because skilled workers have rolled out the recession fairly well. And there are places uh, that, on the whole, larger places tend to have done slightly better than uh, smaller places, mostly because they're diversified and therefore they have a whole bunch of activities and only some of them have really been hit by the global recession. I've only put up one picture from this that I stole from the last LSE Works uh, series, which I guess was two years ago, which is uh, to just give you a feeling of you know, why London got away with it during the recession. So London's big, that helps a lot. And London actually has a reasonably large number of skilled workers. And if you look at what happened to the change in employment uh, in the UK as a result of that, you basically want professional people and their help okay, in your city because those are the guys that have survived okay and the ones that have been really, really screwed are the guys that are doing lots of admin, basic admin-type stuff or that are doing some basic manufacturing-type activities. Okay. So, you know, those uh, things about having lots of skilled people, being large, etc., explain resilience. It's also, I think, uh, fairly clear that uh, notwithstanding, you know, the fact that the future is highly uncertain, at least uh, in the time frame that, you know, I'm comfortable thinking about these things as an economist, 
those factors are the things that are going to drive the economic future of British cities as well. Okay? So let me uh, you know, just try and do one thing to convince you of that. And the one thing that I'm going to try and do to convince you of this is just show you how remarkably stable urban economic performance has been in the UK in terms of the relative ranking of places. As we've seen, uh, you know, cities do better over the last decade. So here is uh, where places were in 1998 compared to the average uh, wage. So, you know, here's London, etc., doing very, very well. And here is what happened a decade later in terms of their position relative to the average wage. Now, of course, average wages have increased a lot during this period, right? We know that this is a period when the UK economy is growing. But just look how settled that distribution of places is, okay? And the reason for that is that, you know, these places like uh, London uh, have just basically been able to maintain their advantage in terms of their size, in terms of the fact they're a concentrated, you know, a place which is concentrated with lots of skilled workers in them. So, you know, my feeling is if you want to understand the future economic performance of UK cities, you basically just want to have a look back into the recent past and say to yourself, you know, it's going to be those things that we think were really important. Okay, so you know the places that we think are going to do well going forward are going to be those that have lots of skilled workers. All our sequel larger places are going to do better than smaller places. Places that are well connected to large successful places will do well, uh, and the places that happen to have some of the stuff that the British economy is doing well at will, you know, carry on doing well. Now let's imagine you know you come to that, you're faced with that. Uh, what can you do as a policymaker who cares about the economic performance of UK cities? So, one of the things you can do is think, look, the problem that we face here is that we've got these cities, some of them are doing terribly well, but some of them are doing really quite badly. And what we need to do is rebalance the UK economy, to use the current you know, parlance for it, by going in and fixing those places that are doing badly. And what I want to tell you is that fixing those places that are doing badly is very, very difficult. Okay. So um, let me just give you some examples by looking at stuff we've done uh, to see whether or not those policies the policy tools that we had in place when we had lots of money have been successful in turning places round in terms of how productive they have been. So the first one I want to tell you a little bit about here is something called the single regeneration budget. The single regeneration budget was the largest regeneration tool that we had at our disposal. And the single regeneration budget basically went into areas of our cities that weren't doing so well, spent shed loads of money trying to turn them around. Now, one of the things that Cirque does is to try to develop ways of evaluating the impact of policy. And the tricky thing about evaluating the impact of policy is that we need to understand what would have happened in the absence of that policy intervention. The way that we're trying to get at it with a single regeneration budget is uh, to use the fact that the single regeneration budget was staggered. So there were some places that got treated very early on and there were some places that got treated very late on. And we go in and try to see whether the places that got treated 
eight years earlier are doing any better than the places that got treated eight years later. They've got this policy intervention eight years later. You know, because if we're turning this place around by all of these things that we're doing to try and improve uh, the local area, then the places that you know, we treat first should be clearly doing better than the places that don't get treated till the end of the time period that we're looking at. Uh, so what we do is compare projects that happen early on, these round one to three projects, to things that happen late on, these round five to six projects. The thing that we're specifically looking at here is the benefits of going in and spending hundreds of millions of pounds on shiny new buildings. Okay, that's a very, very popular thing to do under the SRB. What I can tell you is that the impact of going in and doing shiny new buildings is precisely zero. Okay? These places that have got shiny new buildings early on are doing no better than places that uh, didn't get shiny new buildings until eight, ten years later. All right? Going in and putting shiny new buildings in a deprived neighborhood tends not to, to achieve very much. Now, by the way, so I don't personally find this that, that surprising. Uh, you know, when you've got a situation where you know, you've got a deprived neighbourhood that's not doing very well, uh, going in and sort of putting in shiny new buildings, you can usually fill those shiny new buildings. How? By well, people moving out of the less shiny buildings that still need doing up. Okay? So you know, going in trying to do shiny new buildings doesn't work very well. Well, okay, come on, you know, why shiny buildings? What we care about, surely, is something about, I don't know, enterprise in these areas or trying to turn around places in terms of some of those other factors that we've done. So let's look at something different, the Local Enterprise Growth Initiative. Okay, LEGI, it's not my acronym, it's theirs. Um, so LEGI goes into local authorities and tries to encourage, you know, local authorities that are struggling a little bit within our uh, cities and tries to encourage them uh, to, you know, by giving money to firms or money for training or money to set up new businesses to be more entrepreneurial, to try and deal with the fact that their productivity is low. Okay. So here's an example. Uh, I can't remember. I think this is barking. Okay, so you come in, you do it. Now, again, we want to figure out what would have happened in the absence of policy. And something we did here to figure out what would have happened in the absence of policy is look at small areas just inside these policy boundaries and compare them to small areas just outside these policy boundaries. Okay? So uh, we'd go and look, say, at Croydon. We'd look at all of the areas near to the boundary of the area that were receiving money and compare them to all the guys on the outside. What we saw when we do this is that uh, we can look at how things change in terms of employment over time, in terms of employment growth, and you see that just inside the boundary, it's great news. Okay? This is the area just inside the boundary. It grows slightly faster as a result of this policy intervention to make the area more entrepreneurial and productive, etc., etc. Unfortunately, just outside the boundary, it grows slightly slower. Okay? What I like to refer to this as the shifting the deck chairs on the Titanic uh, policy of uh, local economic improvement. We're basically spending hundreds of millions of pounds shifting jobs from here to somewhere about one kilometre away inside the area. Again, this is not a great policy outcome. We can carry on. You can go and look at something called regional selective assistance. We have a mechanism for thinking about whether regional selective assistance, which basically gives money for firms, had any impact on firm productivity. None. What regional selective assistance does is it tends to make small, low-productivity firms slightly larger. 
making small, low-productivity firms in poorly performing cities slightly larger tends to drive down productivity, not drive up uh, productivity. Roads, with uh, colleagues at CERC, we've tried to look at whether you can detect any impact of roads on firm-level productivity. Again, you know, how we do this is by looking at the changes in accessibility that occur as a result of large road-building programs that weren't really targeted at improving the productivity of specific firms. And what we find is that road-building can shift around employment in a place. Of course, I mean, that kind of goes without saying, but it's very, very hard to detect any impact of these kind of road-building activities on productivity of firms. What I've tried to give you a feeling for here is that careful evaluation of interventions that the government have tried suggests that it's just really, really hard to shift, to, to change the productivity of particular places. Okay. Turns out that it's not hard to have a, a very, very big impact on one particular aspect of cities. The one thing that we are really, really able to do is to massively change the cost of living and doing business in these places. So if we go back to this picture that I showed you, where we start to try and think about you know, how places are doing, you know, I've tried to show you that it's very hard for us to change the wage that a place pays, is capable of paying. Now I want to, to tell you some stories about whether or not we can do things on the cost of living. Turns out that we have lots of policy levers that can affect the cost of living and doing business in a place, and we pull nearly all of them to really, really raise that cost of living and doing business. So let me tell you first housing. Okay? Here, if you've never seen this, this is annual average real house price growth, 1970-2006, just before the bubble. Okay? Per year we managed four and a half percentage point growth okay, in terms of the price of housing. Now, you know, of all these countries that puts us at the top, you know, and pick any one of your favourite countries that you uh, want to compare us to in terms of whether we saw population growth or whether we're a small, crowded place, and you just see that you know, we're absolutely up the top in terms of seeing house prices increase very fast. Now, why is that? Well, uh, Christian Hilbert and uh, other researchers at CERC have tried to understand the impact of planning in terms of uh, these house, driving these house price growths. Okay? So planning in the UK is very, very restrictive. And just to give you a feeling for how restrictive it is, what I've done on this graph here is uh, show you what would happen if we relaxed planning in a local authority that was around the average in terms of its restrictiveness in terms of house building, what would happen if we basically got rid of those restrictions? Now, you might think that's very extreme, so I've also given you what would happen if uh, you were an area like the southeast and you started behaving uh, like the northeast in terms of you know, allowing new houses to be built. What you see is that if you remove restrictions altogether, you would get about a 35 percentage point reduction in house prices in the United Kingdom. If instead you did the more reasonable thing of making the southeast look like the northeast in terms of how uh, uh, permissive we are, this would give you a 25 percent reduction in house prices. Okay. 
Now, you know, people, when you do this, will say, oh, but surely, you know, it's Britain's crowded and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I've just done the comparison of, you know, what, ha- what would happen if we got more space. Uh, that does a few percentage points. Okay? And by the way, if we made England flat, got rid of all the hills, which are problematic, that does about, you know, half, a per- half of a percentage point. Planning is very, very restrictive, uh, and it's a policy lever that we use uh, to raise the cost of living in our most successful areas. It's not just the cost of living, we use it to raise the cost of uh, doing business in our more successful places. So this thing here tries to look at the uh, tax that is imposed on new development, the implicit tax that is imposed on new development by planning constraints. And how this is uh, work by uh, Paul Cheshire and Christian Hilber, uh, again from CERB, uh, how it does this is by saying, look, what we really need to think about here is how much it costs to rent commercial office space relative to uh, how much it costs to build it. Okay? And that gives us a rough idea of the tax that we're imposing as a result of the constraints we put on developers. Why? Well, because if developers were really you know, able to get massive returns relative to the cost of developing and they weren't constrained, they'd be rushing into the market to provide more office space. So just to give you some feeling, in London's West End, it basically costs you eight times as much to rent office space as it would to build office space. Now, perhaps that doesn't surprise you that much uh, until you see that down here is Manhattan, right? Manhattan, it only costs you 50% more to uh, rent office space than it would do to build the stuff in the first place. All right, well, who cares? Uh, you know, London's a beautiful city. Somehow we need to protect it, etc. So here's Paris, which arguably is a also a fairly attractive place. There it costs you three times as much, not eight times as much. What gets really scary is that here's Birmingham, which, you know, no offence to anyone that uh, comes from that part of the world. Uh, you know arguably not as attractive as it might be. Uh, even there, you know, it's two and a half times as much. Newcastle is 100% tax on these things. To give you some idea of what the impact of this is, until relatively recently, renting office space in Birmingham was basically as expensive as renting it in San Francisco. Okay? So we pull these policy levers to make doing business in our more successful places, bigger places, very, very expensive. We don't just do it, by the way, for, um, for offices. We also do it for retail. So one of the things that uh, Paul Cheshire, Christian Hilber, and others have been doing is looking at the impact of uh, basically prohibiting out-of-town developments uh, in retail, trying very much to restrict them. Uh, and here, uh, it's, I think, a fantastic little graph. This shows how productive stores were uh, retail stores uh, in a particular chain. I can't tell you which one. As we move from 1966, uh, and we see, you know, things were changing, technological improvements, etc., etc. And then round about here, we started putting pressure on uh, retailers not to go to these new out-of-town developments. And then about here, we institutionalised this with Town Centre first, and then we watched productivity come back to basically somewhere below where it was in 1966. Okay. How do you understand that? How you understand that is that you know, stores like uh, Tesco Metro uh, and Sainsbury's Local are inefficient ways of uh, basically providing food to urban populations relative to great big malls. Okay. How much? About 20% on your weekly shopping bill. 
So we do things to try and get places more productive that don't work. And then at the same time, we do things to really push up the cost of living in, and working uh, in cities. Does it matter? Right? Does any of this matter? Um, and don't worry, Stuart, I'm, I'm nearly there. Uh, does any of this matter? It matters a lot. So here, what we try and do is a picture that shows you how much more you can get paid in some places than others. And then here, we try to figure out how much more you pay for your housing in those high-paying places versus those low-paying places. And here is what would happen if housing prices were increasing roughly in line with wages. What do we see here? Well, uh, anywhere above that line, anywhere above that straight line, basically has house prices that are really high relative to the wages that the place pays. So what are they? The green stuff, by the way, is, uh, is rural things. So, you know, West Cornwall. House prices in West Cornwall are expensive relative to the wage you can earn there. I don't think that's massively surprising. And then over here is London. Right? Now, London, you basically pay five times the average housing cost to only get one and a half times as high a wage. Why? Because planning is very, very restrictive in London and the South East, which massively drives up the cost of housing. Now, why is anyone doing this? Why people are doing this is that we don't just care about money. We care about all those urban amenities and all that other things, all those other things that, you know, London's very good at giving us. Okay? Uh, so, it is important. These costs mean that our more successful places are very, very expensive for people to move into. Let me, you know, think less from the perspective of, oh, why, you know, here I am thinking about moving around, and more from the perspective of, does that matter for urban economic performance? It actually matters quite a lot. Now, here's a very, very silly picture, but one that I really, really like, Okay. In lots and lots of places around the world, when you go and look at their relative sizes of their cities, you see that the largest place is roughly twice the size of the second largest place. The third largest place is roughly a third the size of the largest place, fourth largest place, roughly a fourth the size. This is a thing called Zipp's Law. And here, I've just taken London and plotted what Zipp's Law, which is something that we see in lots and lots of places around the world, would apply for the size of, you know, our second biggest city, our third biggest city, etc., etc., etc. What I quite like about this, the fact that it's all, people always think that London is too big, right? This is a story that we hear a lot. But actually, London is completely consistent with the size of our very smallest places. The problem that the United Kingdom has is that, you know, we've just got too many of these places in the middle. Right? Some of those places need to be larger, delivering those productivity benefits, and some of them need to be smaller. What stops those places from being larger? Well, here in Birmingham and Manchester, where we're pulling policy levers that stop places from growing in response to the fact that there is a demand to move there. So one thing that policy could do is care a lot more about costs and face up to the fact that doing stuff to shift around area productivity is very, very hard. I've put costs here on housing. I mean, I also think, and this is something we can pick up in the debate afterwards, that uh, we could make our urban schools better. 
we could care a lot more about parks and we could worry a lot about crime in our cities. Because all of these things are factors that uh, tend to push higher skilled families away from certain cities that that might otherwise be attractive to them. The the next thing is probably one of the more controversial things that I'm going to say, which is that in addition to uh, being more attentive to costs, facing up to the fact that we can't do productivity, worrying about uh, education, crime, etc., etc., is that we could basically... This is stop jam spreading. Okay? So, uh, you know, at the moment, British policy, you know, we have to spend a little bit everywhere. And it's, you know, one of the things we could be doing is saying, look, actually, you know, we know there are some places... Uh, where, you know, if we invested in them, improved them, they'd turn themselves around, and we know there are some places, well, where that just isn't going to happen, okay? You know, and we could choose to focus expenditure on those places that are, have some potential to do well and not focus so much on the places that are going to do badly. Now, of course, this is hugely controversial, right? Because what I'm basically arguing here is that in places where we think there's some potential, we might do interventions around those place things, you know, around improving the housing supply, increasing the amount of commercial land, possibly building transport, etc. And other places, we just shouldn't really do those kind of interventions. Right? Now, what worries people, of course, is that the people that are left behind in those places. What on earth we should do about that? And I suppose that... You know, one of the things, again, we can pick up in the discussion is that if we really care about urban economic performance in the UK, we just probably need to front up a bit more to the fact that the economic future of British cities has some places doing well and some places doing badly, and there is really very, very little we can do about it. What you do about the places that are left behind is you go in and you try to help the people, not the place. So, to wrap up, my 42 minutes, sorry, Stuart, uh, is up. Um, You know, the future, I think, is bright for some British cities. But I'm afraid that I don't think the future is bright for all British cities. And, you know, I just think that is the economic forces that we face. That's the way that structural change and the market forces are pushing us. If we don't like that, what can we do about it? And here's the really depressing thing. Nothing. Okay? We can't, I just don't think that, we could turn around any place in the United Kingdom, right? But we're just not able or willing to spend the amount of money that it would take to achieve that. So in that world, what can you do? Well, I'm afraid, you know... You can't really do anything to turn around the productivity of all of these places. What you can do is be more realistic about the costs. And you can think about focusing your intervention on specific places. Now, unfortunately, that is going to widen spatial disparities, not narrow them. Should we care? I have to say that I am uh, very relaxed about that particular aspect of this uh, story about the economic future of British citizens because 
I think that we should care about the impact on people. I really don't mind so much about the impact on places. Uh, and this is a way of trying to get the best out of the urban future that we're going to have. I'll finish on a note that shows that I don't spend my whole time in the ivory tower, as Stuart just said. You know, what's the biggest, biggest barrier to this? The biggest, biggest barrier to facing up to this is the fact that this is, you know, not a view that is shared by constituency-based policymakers. Thanks, Henry. Well, fantastic talk, apart from that comment about Birmingham. <laughs> My speakers are proud for me. Um, so we're going to go now to two comments from our discussion. So have you decided which order? So I think Alexandra is going to go first and then Adam and then we'll open it up to uh, the audience. Great. Thank you. Um, well, Henry, as always, has given... Um, I think I'm just going to stand up so I can see people. ...has given a powerful, well-evidenced, very persuasive overview of how and why cities are changing and the implications for urban policy. And a lot of his analysis really reflects things that we've done at the Centre of Cities... Um, so that's a think tank dedicated to under, understanding and improving city economies through research and policy analysis. And we look at what makes cities successful. Where I probably differ slightly more is on some of the things that you might do about that and what the implications are for urban policy. So I'm going to go through a few of the things where I, I, we do agree, um, and, and I do agree and our analysis supports it and extend that a bit, and then talk a bit about what we, I think that could mean for urban policy, which is slightly different to, to Henry's. Um, first point, as Henry says... A wide range of factors contribute to cities' success and, and the sorting decisions that, that individuals make. And skills is the most important. So wherever you go, you can see it. It's most important for individuals, for their earnings, for their life chances. It's most important for uh, some of the bigger cities, clearly, and size matters as well. But it also matters for some of the smaller cities. And this is something I'm going to come back to in what this means for policy. So if you look at um, somewhere like um, Harrogate, quite a small place, um, that is a highly skilled small place that benefits significantly from Leeds, one of the very big economies on its doorstep. Uh, Bradford, on the other hand, relatively low skilled, very close to Leeds, but actually benefits far less from that economy on its doorstep. And that's all about skills. So actually when you look at the uh, transport links, they're, they're pretty good from Bradford, but actually people don't benefit because commuting doesn't happen because the cost of commuting isn't worth uh, them doing so because the wage isn't sufficient to compensate for the cost of that commuting. So skills matters, absolutely key, it's the most important thing. And it's a long-standing issue. We did some work, um, probably going back a bit further than Henry would be happy with, but uh, back to 1901, just looking at the performance of different cities. And whilst clearly there are lots and lots of differences, um, when you compare the performance of cities in 1901 to cities in 2011, you found that seven out of eight of the best-performing cities today... Uh, had above-average levels of skills in 1901. 80% of these cities with the most vulnerable economies today were in the bottom 20 for skills in 1901. This is a long-standing thing, and there's an element of uh, sorting going on even there, returns. So if you've got um, uh, high levels of skills even then, there were returns on that. And I've just seen the author of that paper in the audience there. Um, it's not just skills, as Henry said, it's about size, it's about connectivity, it's about industrial diversity. Interestingly, um, uh, Bradford, it's one of the cities that was doing best in 1901, doing far worse in 2011. A lot of that was just over-dependence on one industry. Um, and it's also about things like 
and again, Henry mentioned this, the ease of doing business locally. It's about the right kind of residential and commercial offer. It's about the good schools. It's about a good quality of life. It's about strong local leadership. And some of those are more anecdotal. But when you talk to business, and I'm sure Adam will touch on this, many of those are things that really matter. So it's a mix of a whole range of things. It's having the whole mix together and getting that right that matters. Um, One of the things that's often said about successful cities is that as long as you've got an airport, some high-skilled people, um, and a, a university, you're all right. And I think Hull is interesting. It combines two out of three. It's got an airport, Humberside, in case you weren't sure. Um, It's got a university, but it doesn't do very well. And that's really down to the skills. But it's about that mix of things. It's got other good things going on there. It's got a a nice quality of life nearby, but it doesn't have those skills. It's about that right mix. So I'm really agreeing with with Henry on a lot of that. I'm also agreeing that places are very different, um, and they've done very differently over recent years. Um, and actually differences have become more marked. So because of the shift, we've got to this more knowledge-intensive economy where actually skills matter more than they did, not less. And you can see in the recession, most of the jobs lost were unskilled and administrative. So the people most affected were those with lower levels of qualifications, and that has meant the places most affected are those with higher levels of those people. So, for example, Cambridge and Hull, uh, two quite different economies. Um, Cambridge um, uh, has the lowest levels of unemployment, very high-skilled workers... Um, it has seen the gap between its unemployment rate and Hull's unemployment rate double over the recession. Um, if you look at Hull, one in ten young people are long-term unemployed. If you look at uh, Cambridge, the figures are far lower than that. It compares, for example, to York, one in 30 young, uh, young people are long-term unemployed. The differences are vast, and they have grown. So this sense of disparity is absolutely true, and the opportunities available to people in different places are quite different. Um, even if you look at places like Manchester and Birmingham, actually, during the uh, boom years, Manchester grew its private sector by, by more than 30,000 private sector jobs. Birmingham lost 60,000 private sector jobs. So even if you're a high-skilled person in one of those economies, actually the opportunities available to you are slightly different, um, and that does affect you. So I think places have, have changed, disparities have, if anything, grown. But I think there is a point about um, even if you're a high-skilled person in some of these more successful places, the opportunities available to you are different because the characteristics of that place, the way that uh, characteristics combine, they're different as well. <coughs> and I think one very good example of that is also housing. And again, Henry touches on this, and this moves me into my final points about urban policy. Um, housing is one of the things that's most different between places. So if you look um, at the UK as a whole, it's very clear the UK needs more houses. We desperately need more houses, 230,000 houses a year, according to the government. If you look at individual cities, it's clear that's not necessarily true for all of them. So um, Oxford, one of the most successful economies in the country, um, in research that's coming out next week, um, our City's Outlook report, please do look at it, it'll be available on Monday, um, will be showing that Oxford is one of the places with, with the uh, lowest affordability ratio, either, i.e. it's the most, um, one of the most unaffordable places in the country. Highly successful. Actually, people can benefit from accessing jobs there. It costs far too much. And while the local authority is trying to do things to build houses, it needs many, many more. Um, Compare that to Liverpool, which built 20,000 houses during a period when it lost 6,000 population, which does need new types of houses. It's got one of the lowest numbers of executive housing, and actually it has got a high-skill economy where it could be some benefit, but not necessarily money just for new houses. Actually, this is about refurbishment. It's about retrofit. It's about making the most of the quality. And actually, that could reduce business transaction costs because people want to be in a nice area. And that, that's important for businesses too. So lots of differences between places. Some of those differences have grown. And the kind of place that you're in affects the challenges 
facing you as an individual working in that place and that place itself. So what does that mean for urban policy? Really, and I think this is where I've got some... I agree with Henry on some things and not others. I think it's very clear that um, the factors affecting the success of of cities... One of the biggest things is people. It's high skills. The higher skilled you are as an individual, the higher skilled you are as a city, the better you do. But it's also about housing and infrastructure and some of these kind of more physical things. And that's more an issue, as Henry did say, in the more successful places. Now, what I would like to see, what the centre would like to see, is, is actually both more of a focus on place and less of a focus on place in national policy. We'd like to see less of a focus in that often it's very local. So it's very localist policies, often quite parochial policies. Um, you get special treatments in some places. You get ideas about um, very nice buildings based on perhaps what one person locally would like that aren't necessarily what's good for the local economy, that aren't thinking about this place in the context of how it works within a wider economy. But also I think there's a lack of emphasis on place um, in things like housing policy, where actually you've got a national housing policy that's all about building new houses everywhere. That is absolutely not what we need in some of the northern cities that are most vulnerable. And that's what the incentives are. They've cut money from all the councils, so actually northern cities should be chasing this money if they're sensible to try and get money for their budgets. It's wrong for their economy. That's because there's no place focus in that national policy. You can see that again. So what we'd like to see, policies are absolutely about uh, growth in cities. Henry's touched on this. This should be about housing, infrastructure, about uh, trying to make sure that you've got the the lowest cost of doing business uh, possible whilst retaining a quality of place. The vulnerable places need another set of policies. I recognise Henry's concerns about some of the uh, downsides of that, and absolutely skills is the most important. But actually, um, improving the quality of place there, bringing some things back into use, retrofitting, where possible, learning from international examples where you restore green space, you knock through on houses, you make the most of existing stock. Improving schools, and Henry did touch on this, the most deprived areas have the least well-performing schools. You're much less likely to get a GCSE in maths and English in Hull than in Cambridge. And actually, that's more important if you want to get a job. So improving those things for the more vulnerable cities. They are more people-based policies, but you need a place angle because the challenges you face are different. In Hull, there are far fewer jobs. You need a certain kind of flex around the place in order to make the most of that place. And I'll stop there. Thank you, sir. Very clear and very concise. So we're going to move now to Adam. Thank you, Stuart. I'll stand up as well because uh, otherwise people over there can't see me too well. I, uh, my starting point is a little bit different to Alex's. Um, I'm what I would call a recovering academic. Um, I'm an urban policy specialist by training, but I'm an advocate for business by profession. So I spend my days, uh, as Stuart said earlier, arguing for the interests of about 100,000 companies up and down the UK who are members of 54 accredited chambers of commerce. Um, They do employ about 5 million people, and they are very, very opinionated and tell you what they think and tell you what they want you to represent them on. Um, And so many of those issues are actually the issues that Henry touched upon in his presentation, most particularly around the cost of doing business. So what I'd like to do for just a couple of minutes, if I can, is focus not on what we did before and the urban policies of the past, but on what policy might do in the future, in particular to lower some of those transaction costs that both Henry and Alex were talking about, because I think that's the only way that all of our cities actually have a chance at competitiveness. It's also the only way that our most successful cities can continue to compete globally because they're actually in a global race, not just for talent, but also for investment uh, and for the innovators of the future. Um, My core argument is really this. 
the job of urban policy in the future is to help places get the basics right. It's not about going and remediating the twin evils of physical blight and social deprivation. Um, It's not about displacement of activity, which we've seen so much of in the past. It's really about enabling economic competitiveness. Um, Because the simple fact of the matter is this. Despite those in in some bits of the uh, urban theory world and, and urban academia, without that economic competitiveness, we won't see the physical renewal we need. We won't see the social improvements that we want to see, and we won't see the quality of life which you need, of course, in order to have a thriving city over time. There are those who actually disagree with that very statement. I I think it's absolutely uh, crucial. Um, And I think that's analogous to our situation nationally, because without economic policies fundamentally focused on delivering competitiveness, all of the things that we want to have, like healthcare, like pensions, and like education, become impossible to deliver because we simply don't have the money to do it. So if future urban policy has to be all about competitiveness, what do we actually need to see it do? Um, I think the first area is one in which I agree wholeheartedly with both Henry and with Alex, which is uh, improving primary and secondary education and the skills base in our cities. But where I'll shift my emphasis slightly is away from the word skills which to me uh, brings uh, visions of different types of qualifications, which in this country we change every two years, um, different uh, types of political initiatives from our masters down the road in Westminster, etc. I don't want to focus on that. I want to focus on the basic skills in primary and secondary education, which actually probably are some of the best predictors of how cities do. Alex has just mentioned that. I would focus on that even more. Because what the business people tell me is that young people in too many of our cities... Um, are taught to tests and they're taught to to, to pass exams. They're not taught the practical skills that they need to get into work and they're not taught the basic basic level skills that any employer wants to see them have in order to then take them on and train them in the advanced skills that ultimately deliver the sorts of productivity benefits that Henry was talking about. The doors of the Department for Education in this country are actually closed to business. Uh, and they have been for many, many years. They are in the grip of providers of education services. That is one of the biggest disasters that our cities face now and will face for quite a long time because until what's being provided by our education system actually matches up to some of the expectations of those who would hire these young people, take them on whether as apprentices or recent graduates or anything else, and develop them more fully, our competitiveness overall and the competitiveness of our cities is very much at risk. Um, The second area which I think future urban policy has to be about is one area that Henry touched on, and I I don't think you were that controversial, Henry, I think some of your colleagues at CERC perhaps are more controversial than you on this, but it's on a pro-growth planning system. Um, I think we're sleepwalking towards a crisis in this country, actually two crises. Uh, The housing crisis that we're sleepwalking towards was was, uh, amply demonstrated by Henry. We are sleepwalking towards a second crisis in this country, which is around the availability of employment land. We've spent 15 years developing housing on brownfield land across the UK. It's become a bit of an orthodoxy. And what I have now are businesses next to some of these lovely new developments on brownfield land that cannot expand because everyone in the lovely new houses built on brownfield land objects to their business expanding. And I have a case of a manufacturer in the black country in particular, which always comes to mind, in Wolverhampton, which wants to build a new manufacturing line so that it can export its product to Brazil, precisely what our economy needs right now. 
can't do it because the residents of the new-built flats, only built for about five years, just next door, have all objected en masse. So it's the new people who've moved in to this probably incorrect type of housing in the wrong place, Alex was talking a little bit about that before, who are deciding that actually the employment uses can't expand. I think we have a crisis coming around employment land. It is partially due to what Henry is talking about in terms of very strict overall planning controls, but in particular on employment, commercial and industrial land. We, we, we are going to get to a point where we are simply not able to accommodate any businesses that want to expand, and that would be a very dangerous day indeed. Um, and then the third thing I think urban policy has to focus on is quite obvious. It's about infrastructure and in particular connectivity. Uh, when you do business surveys uh, with the frequency that I do and you ask lots of loaded questions of your business members to try to get the outcome you want, um, what they tell you back in return is that uh, without local connectivity, uh, their business prospects, not just nationally but globally, will suffer. Um, actually, the infrastructure problem, as Henry said, isn't about mass, pro mass road building. It isn't about necessarily some of the biggest infrastructure projects, but it's often about the first mile. Um, because local connectivity is global connectivity's first mile. So whether we're talking about roads, whether we're talking about broadband networks, whether we're talking about energy grids and public utilities or gateways, so often there are things that could be done at a relatively reasonable cost to eliminate those infrastructure bottlenecks, which would get businesses investing on the back of those improvements, and then, of course, the jobs, the productivity, and the vitality that then follow. So education, planning, and infrastructure are my three big areas, but there are just a couple of other things I'd like to throw into the mix. The first is finance, right? Our cities don't have any responsibility for their own money, and this is something that Alex has talked about extensively over the years. Um, so actually, they're, they're not going to compete to the best possible extent in the global race for competitiveness until they actually control more of their own resources and take more decisions themselves, right? If the incentives coming from central government are skewed the wrong way, the cities are not going to focus on their competitiveness first. Um, we have a local property tax system in this country that is probably the most bonkers in the world. Uh, if you build a house today, it is valued according to what it would have been worth in 1991, and whether it's a uh, two million pound house or a 60 million pound house in Kensington Palace Gardens, you'll pay the same tax rate. It's bonkers. It's ridiculous. We have a business tax rate where business property taxes um, are set centrally. Right now, businesses like that because they don't trust local authorities to set them themselves after what happened last time around. Um, but it's, it's, it's very unresponsive to actually increases in business space because central government designs incentives around increases in business space to be so complicated that most local authorities don't know whether they can actually use the money at the other end. We are, we are designing policy so well and over-engineering it so much that any natural benefit to cities of actually using it to their advantage disappears. Um, second consideration that I would just add to this uh, is around the geographical footprint of the public sector. Alex mentioned uh, Birmingham. Now, Birmingham is my biggest concern, sorry, among cities in this country. The reason why is all of its growth, all of its economic growth was dependent on growth in the public sector. Uh, during the best years this country has seen and the biggest sustained period of growth this country has seen in a long time. If the 2000s had to be the, the, the decade for the public sector city in certain respects, the 2010s have to be the decade for the entrepreneurial private sector city. My view is, if you get the education system right, if you get the planning system liberalized, as Henry has said, and if you get the infrastructure right, this can be the decade for the more entrepreneurial city. The question is, again, as Henry put so rightly, 
do our politicians actually have the guts required to take what is essentially a very big political risk in doing so? So thank you very much. Thanks, Adam. I think everyone will agree we've had three terrific and very clear presentations. We've got about 20 minutes left now for question and answers. We'll probably take them in groups of three. I think we've got microphones. If they come to you, we'll start over here um, and we'll work our way around. Please say who you are and make your question fairly concise. Uh, Nick Sharman. Uh, I'm, I I guess, a very unpopular person uh, in this panel. I'm uh, an ex-planner ex-regional uh, development agency and I was in charge of London's uh, SRB programme. So I think I've, had, <laughs> I've been dished at every level. But I have... Uh, it's, I, I mean, I, I feel like a dinosaur uh, in a uh, set of people who have uh, actually elided uh, a lot of the problems that uh, 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 underlie cities. Uh, just take one example. The SRB, which you airily uh, dismissed as a, uh, a basically just new buildings. It had all sorts of problems. It was incoherent. It was one thing after another, layers of it, and it badly needed coordination. But it won't yield to the easy dismissal that you made in a, in a very simplistic way uh, on that. Uh, the, the other uh, thing is that I wanted to just raise is this business about regional level. We've gone back to cities which are the old uh, definitions of economic areas. Those disappeared after the Second World War as focuses for uh, industry. You have to look in employment markets at much wider focus. And I want to put in a plea, and it's a very unfashionable one, for the regional economy. Because uh, if you start looking at the regional economy, the particular problems uh, uh, have got much wider answers than are suggested here. Uh, finally, a, a suggestion that planning uh, is, is, is constricting uh, industrial land uh, just seems to me absolute nonsense. Uh, and I've got quite a lot. I've just been doing a review of, planning, of, of local plans. The amount of locally available land is not the problem. I think it's much closer to what you were talking about, which is the access of infrastructure to release that land. And to blame the planners for it just seems to me part of this, this kind of liberal economic uh, stuff that's come actually from all three of you, uh, that uh, we just have to free everything up and it will all be well. Stay this side, take that gentleman there and then this gentleman and then we'll go over to that side, second group. Thank you. I've actually got a question. Um, Harold Wilson sacked an economist who went off and, and did a, a professorship in, uh, held a professorship in New Zealand for saying that most of the economic activity in the UK was going to be sucked towards the southeast because of the effect of the EU. Is this not the elephant in the room? Thank you. And there's a gentleman right by you. Yes, hello, Stephen Boxall. Um, Henry mentioned um, that a lot of cities, but not all, improved since 1997, but then also mentioned that, relatively, they're still in the same rank. So does that illustrate the need for actually general economic growth rather than relying on cities doing it for themselves. And um, Adam mentioned, um, I didn't understand Adam's point about public sector footprint um, in relation to Birmingham. Surely if the public sector growth didn't happen in Birmingham, Birmingham would have even more unemployment now than it did because the private sector growth just didn't happen and I don't believe it's been crowded out. Henry, do you want to start? Yeah, sure. Um, 
Yeah, SRB was complicated. I, maybe I misspoke when I was talking about it. What I said was that we just chose... You know, the part of SRB that we chose to evaluate uh, was the part that spent lots of money uh, making shiny new buildings. And as far as we can tell, that relatively expensive uh, part of it uh, didn't have much impact on employment, uh, if that was what it was intended to do. I'm fully sympathetic to the fact that it was a very complicated policy. I mean, the regional level thing, um, I, I think that regional level... Uh, in the sort of old regional development agency sense is too big. I think cities in the rather narrow sense that uh, the coalition government have chosen to uh, go is too small. But you mean, I, I think probably there will be no disagreement on the panel that those sort of metro area level things are really the, 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 the geography that we should be playing with. Um, look, you know... I, it's, it's too easy to set this up as planning, uh, you know, planners versus economists. Plan, the planning system does very many important things. My argument is that we just don't pay enough attention to the fact that it raises the cost of living and doing business a lot and that we should worry about that relative to the benefits that it brings us. Um, UK economic activity sucks towards the southeast. <laughs> it is the elephant in the room. Uh, I uh, work with a lot of northern uh, cities. My feeling on uh, that is that, uh, yes, you know, there are pressures pulling stuff towards the southeast, but it's not just the story of London versus the rest. In Manchester, if you look at what happened to uh, house price affordability and the cost of commercial space in Manchester, you know, we could have develop Manchester more if we'd been willing to respond to the economic pressures uh, that we were seeing. We probably could have developed Newcastle more. We probably could have developed Leeds more. We might have even been able to do stuff in Birmingham. <laughs> I don't know why. It's the pleasure of having a chair who's from uh, the middle country. Um, but the thing is that we really struggled to do it. Uh, partly uh, because Manchester and places like that did struggle uh, to free up uh, on, on the planning side of things, but also because the regional development agencies face lots and lots of pressure to spend money right across uh, the whole northwest, rather than uh, focusing on on uh, Manchester. So, you know, I think outside of the southeast, in each of our regions, northeast, northwest, there are cities that are doing relatively well, and I think that we should be working with the market forces <laughs> within those regions, given that the market forces pulling stuff towards the southeast are very strong. So at least go with market forces within the region, uh, given that the market forces at the national level are uh, very, very strong. Uh, and then uh, the final question, uh, public sector. I mean, we have done some research on this. Public sector employment, uh, the evidence suggests, uh, tends to be beneficial to local services. It uh, tends to be detrimental to manufacturing uh, to non to uh, traded activities, so manufacturing, etc. So you know, when you come and put public sector employment into a place like Birmingham, you're propping up demand, propping up local demand, propping up local services. At the same time, you're having a negative impact on manufacturing. It might be that we're perfectly happy with that, but again, I think that the difficulty here is that we should at least acknowledge that there are pluses and minuses to 
putting lots of public sector employment in Birmingham and seeing it expand, and that that expansion of the public sector might explain some of the problems that the private sector had in that area. Whether we then decide that our response to that is no public sector employment in these places, that's a totally different question. But I think we should at least acknowledge the fact that there might be a negative connection between those two things. Alex, I'm going to ask you to be very brief so that we can have yeah. a second round of questions. Um, the point on regional economy, you would expect someone who runs a centre for cities to say we'd rather cities, but absolutely not the narrow definition. I think the northeast, the former northeastern region, is much closer to perhaps what you would have there. Um, northwest, you'd argue, perhaps a bit bigger. Well, sorry, it was a bit big. You've got Manchester and Liverpool. It makes more sense to kind of make the most of those because that's where the market, labour markets are. Um, on planning, one of the things we're certainly hearing about... Um, barriers to making use of land is that infrastructure and financing infrastructure. So, it, I mean, there are individual issues locally about planning and, and kind of granting planning permission, but one of the big things from developers where there is planning permission, where they want to develop the land, is just finance for infrastructure. Um, a point on the north-south divide, just absolutely agree, it's not a north-south divide. All our work shows that. Leeds, Manchester in particular, but also places like Birmingham, Bristol as well, are really growing, um, and we need to make the most of those. Um, there's also a point about public sector employment I wanted to make, that it's, there, is, there are different types. So I think sometimes we go too simply into the public bad, private good. If you look at Cambridge, one of our most successful cities, the ratio of public sector to private sector jobs is 1.9 um, uh, private sector jobs to every uh, one public sector job. It's not high. To give you a sense, in Swindon, it's 4.2 private sector jobs to every one public sector. So massively dominated by the public sector, does really well. That's about the type of job. So I think we need to be careful about not being too simplistic. Final point, cities doing it for themselves. We'd argue that, yes, you do need general growth. Of course you do. There's something cities can't control. But actually, this is what Adam touched on, some more incentives for cities to do some of the things that do uh, make it easier to do business, that help people who live there to access employment. That's around land, housing skills. They do make sense. Some of those incentives aren't there. So some of this is about cities doing it for themselves. Some of it is about, yes, general growth. Um, just very briefly, starting with Nick's points, I, I think we completely agree that improving infrastructure links releases land, and that's probably where it stops. Um, no, but I want to distinguish between planning and planners. Planners are extremely important. Businesses work very well with planners. It's no surprise they work better with planners in the north and in the Midlands than they do in the south of this country because of the political masters uh, of those planners. And I have a lot of sympathy for individual planners who are stuck with ward councillors from very small wards deciding not to bring in economic activity in some areas because a few residents object. Planners are in an impossible position, so I, I'd acknowledge that. But I do think that the planning system as a whole does, as Henry said, impose high costs on doing business. Now, we have to remember in this country we are not uh, uh, an island unconnected to the rest of the world. It is very easy for businesses doing any kind of basic cost-benefit analysis to say it costs us two times, three times, four times as much to do business in the UK than it does to do business somewhere else in terms of our fixed costs, right? Does the UK actually offer us enough attractiveness in terms of its people, its quality of life, etc., to overcome that cost burden, right? And there are a lot of businesses that in the future will say no as other countries become more competitive. We have to be sensitive to that. Um, in terms of the southeast versus the, the rest of the country, my big concern, what scares me, is the notion of an entrepreneurial and private sector-dominated southeast and a public sector hinterland elsewhere. I'm massively oversimplifying, but I'm doing it for one reason alone, which is this. I'm scared about vulnerability and resilience of the UK as a country if that is the division that we ultimately end up having, which is why I would like to see much more private sector growth in places like Birmingham, whose, whose economic growth and, and, and 
sort of positive moves during the 1990s and 2000s was so dependent on the public sector because when you enter a period of austerity or austerity in inverted commas actually like the one that we have now we could be having Greek style austerity for example then we'd really see what would happen in places like Birmingham it would be a disaster that's the kind of thing that scares me so having a diverse economic base in all of these cities is extraordinarily important We've got time for three more questions on this side we'll take a couple of younger people if there are any Students that want to ask questions. Otherwise, okay, we've got two questions here. Is it black and white cardigan, and then a... Hi, Eleanor Furman from Sisters of Frida, Disabled Women's Group. When you were talking earlier, Henry, about uh, some cities never doing better, whatever, wouldn't do better for government intervention, whatever that intervention is, I'm asking you, what, how would you define that point where you say, uh, no, we shan't inter intervene in, in that? Uh, in that uh, town's development um, and what sort of choice how does that affect choices in your view for example how many fire stations you might have in that place if you were looking to cut a budget what kind of issues are thrown up by your, your suggestion there Could you just pass it to the lady two in front of you thank you with a pink scarf Thank you. Uh, thanks. My name is Yona My question is that there wasn't really any reference to the kind of communication that we can get from broadband until Adam came on the street. And I'm wondering, Henry, if you look forward uh, to the potential for people to combine participation in the labour market with residents in low uh, cost of living settings, whether you might have any uh, change in the influences that you balanced settings going forward. There's probably one more if there's, I don't think there's any... I'm trying to pick a young person. Go to the gentleman at the back. Everything's relative. <laughs> <laughs> younger than me. Yes, the gentleman up there. Uh, if I understood you correctly, Henry, you were talking about cities um, with not so bright of a future having policy focused on people and then cities with a bright future... Uh, policy focus on the place. And Alex, you talked about kind of a hybrid of the two. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering what um, that looks like in terms of policy differentiated between focusing just on people independent of place. Thanks. Do you want to go in reverse order? Let Henry have the last word. So, okay. Adam, are you ready to? Yeah. Okay. Um, Eleanor's question was basically about a tipping point. Is there a tipping point for cities? Um, there's not a tipping point to shut a place down, I don't think, but there is a tipping point after which you have to plan to be a smaller place. And this is, you know, going back to the previous conversation where planners play an extremely important and positive role, right? There are a number of cities in this country that have yet to face up to the fact that in the future their populations and their level of jobs and everything else might be 10, 20, even 30% smaller than they have been to date. And whether that's when the public sector retrenches or when a particular industry uh, no longer operates in that place. You know, there's a number of different scenarios under which that could happen. But I think we need to start a dialogue in this country about how you plan for a place to be smaller. Uh, because in planning for some place to be smaller, you can actually plan for it to be more successful relatively than it is today. Um, to the point on, on, on broadband and broadband communications, my businesses scream about broadband all the time. Actually, it's about upload speeds as much as it is about download speeds, because the best entrepreneurial and creative businesses are trying to get stuff up the pipe rather than bring stuff down the pipe. Um, but I would say this. Um, the, the death of distance is a myth, 
and face-to-face matters hugely, hugely, hugely for businesses, even the most creative and entrepreneurial, even those that have the most flexible working and even those that have the most use of remote working and digital technology. They do more and more face-to-face. They travel more and more than they ever did before. So I've always thought that the notion that we could have people in one place working for an economic engine somewhere else was a bit far-fetched for me. I don't think it'll actually work. Um, and can you focus on people independent of place? I will leave up to Henry and Alex. <laughs> Alex, Thanks. first. Um, the, the tipping point, I think, has been addressed. I think there are challenges. You can look around the world, and some politicians do take decisions to say, well, we've, we are smaller than we used to be. What can we do to actually make more of that and make sure the people who live here benefit from it? There are various examples. But I, as I said, I don't think that you um, should leave places uh, to to kind of uh, shrink on their own. I think there should be some attention to some of the people who live there, and I'll come back to that at the end. Um, On the broadband, I think it's a really interesting question. If you look at uh, take-up of home working, it hasn't increased as much as was predicted, and it's been predicted for years, that it would uh, would increase significantly. Actually, it tends to be... It's gone up a bit, but it tends to be sporadic home working rather than all the time. And even those who do work at home tend to go into cities to meet and to kind of have various uh, face-to-face meetings. Another survey I did in a previous role showed that uh, people tend to use broadband and other things as a complement to face-to-face as opposed to the only thing. Now, I'm sure that as technology improves, as video conferencing improves, some of this may change, but I think what you can see, even with those businesses, as Adam said, who work a lot at home, people make use of cities to meet, to kind of bring people together. It's also access to kind of ideas and some of the kind of... um, uh, spontaneous uh, just ideas and, and interactions that can be useful. So I think face-to-face will still matter. I'm sure it may change some things and it may make some living in some places more possible than it was. On the people versus place, um, the reason I argue for a hybrid is that um, my sense is that the qualities of a place, and there's research on this, affect how people operate. Now, to give you an example, there's research done for the Northern Way, two communities in Leeds, very similar demographically, um, but actually uh, responding quite differently to the opportunities in the labour market because one was much more internally focused than the other. So the network's very internal, the bus routes were slightly different. So I think, I think skills are clearly, all the evidence shows skills are absolutely key. You have to invest in the skills. But there are certain things about uh, more vulnerable places that, make, um, that are just about getting the basics right, I suppose, as Adam was saying. It's about making sure that you are thinking about how you link people in. It can be smaller things like the design of housing estates making a difference to how people interact. It can be about bus routes, not having to take two buses to the employment. It can be a whole range of things, but I suppose I think it's, that will be about people, but it's also about how a place shapes the way people act, the access they have, and I think you do need both. What you do there is quite different to what Cambridge and Reading needs. Thank you. Henry. Um, I, I had a, you know, it's not, I'm not going to sit here and, uh, Identify which of the places that uh, you know have no future. Part, partly because I am not a, I, I'm not, uh, I'm not totally uh, willing to take all the brickbats that would come my way from doing that. But also, I mean, the future is uncertain. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, we're not going to go for a completely extreme system where uh, these places get completely abandoned. I mean, that's really clear. I guess that, I, you know, as always with this, you know, I presented the argument in an extreme way to try and move the policy a little bit in that direction. Uh, you know, I think it's about uh, trying to combat the strong political forces towards jam spreading, uh, trying to combat those so that we get some more concentration on places that have some chances of delivering. Uh, the broadband question has been done. I mean, the academic evidence on this is fairly strong, that 
ICT is a complement to face-to-face interaction, not a substitute. So, you know, yes, because, partly because it just generates more, um, more connections. So, you know, on any one individual um, link, you know, you might not see people as much as you used to, uh, but the number of links that you're capable of sustaining increases vastly, and the aggregate effect of that is to increase the number of face-to-face interactions you have, not decrease them. And I'm without, I mean, the, de- the death of distance, the death of distance, etc., has been has been uh, predicted for a long time and not come to pass. Um, and I suppose, you know, let me give a concrete example of what I mean about the place intervention. I mean, what I mean here is just that, you know, uh, going to somewhere like Hull, building the Humber Bridge, because it's going to turn Hull around. Uh, that, that, to me, is a place-based intervention that was aimed at, you know, transforming the uh, Humber side economy, I'm not convinced that that was the best use of money. Uh, And there would be similar things like, you know, tram networks and shiny new buildings and, you know, things are just aimed at transforming a place uh, that that I just think, you know, a more realistic assessment would say is just going to be a waste of money. And I would rather see, you know, money spent on uh, local schools and trying to improve uh, educational outcomes, etc. Uh, and I think that it's it's really difficult uh, for policymakers because they like, you know, the school, they like to see the transport, and the shiny buildings, and all of these kind of things. But deep down, I think that the thing that benefits their constituencies. Uh, their constituents is to is to focus on those core things, and I think that that is the way. Deep down, I just think that that is the way that you improve the outcomes for people who are currently stuck in places that are not doing very well. And you know, I'm not a neoliberal because I deeply, deeply care about uh, the well-being of people who live to, live in our more deprived places. Uh, it's just that I would like policy to uh, be doing the things that might effectively improve their quality of life uh, rather than having policy do the things that we pretend will increase their policy of life but have absolutely no impact on it. Thank you, Henry. Uh, we, we've reached 8 o'clock. Let me just very quickly offer three votes of thanks. First of all, to all of you for joining with us this evening. Hope you get home before an inch of snow brings London to a crawling halt. Uh, <laughs> Secondly, to thank the LSE event staff for putting on the event. But thirdly, most importantly, to invite you all to thank, I think, three outstanding presentations by our speakers and for the way they engaged. <laughs>